Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. And you're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Thomas Hardy's novel Tess of the Durbervilles. And we're going to talk about the the rest of phase one, which if you have an edition or you're listening on an audiobook that doesn't break out those phases, I believe is chapters five through 11. Is it six through 11? Right, five through 11, something like that. I know it ends at 11. <laughs> uh, and so we're going to talk about a number of different things. Um, I'll just say this at the top. At the end of this episode, we're going to talk about the end of chapter 11, which I'll mention it again later, but that, that section does have some topics that we probably would recommend you be judicious and careful about who listens alongside you. I know some of you listen with children. That's, we love that. You know, this might be a section that you need to be cautious about that. So we're going to save that for the end of the episode. So if they want to listen with you for the first part, then you can decide what kind of conversations you want to have with your kids about those topics later on. Uh, first though, Heidi, Karen, how's it going? Karen, how are you? <laughs> I, I'm great. I'm. This is like the highlight of my week. So oh. here we are. <laughs> well, that's awesome. That's great. Heidi, how are you? I'm doing great, David. How about you? I'm well. So I just want to say something here. We need to wish Heidi a happy birthday because her birthday was over the weekend. And I was going to mention it last week. And I'll be honest, I, I forgot. <laughs> Fair enough. We were Fair like, enough. Well, that was way before I apo- my birthday. I, it was. It was before your birthday. We're adults, I, I apologize. Right? Think- I apologize. I had this like long list of things to talk about. We got into the book. I was trying to figure out how to pronounce Durbervilles. And the next thing I know, I'd forgotten to wish you happy birthday on the show. But we have to make sure we do that publicly. So Heidi, happy birthday. Thanks, David. Thanks, happy David. birthday. Thanks, and because I, I want it to be happy, I won't sing. I will just say it. Oh. Exactly. Oh man, I feel like that would definitely make me happy for sure. No. <laughs> yeah, uh, same, same. I would never do that. Um, this book is really kind of picking up here. And Heidi, it's been a while you said since you read this, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a couple things that I've been thinking about, a couple themes. Obviously, I mentioned we're going to talk about the end of chapter 11. I know you've got a lot to say about that. I also want to talk about this, this idea of uh, fate. And uh, providence and all these things that he has been dropping seeds of. And then at the end of chapter 11, we also see it showing up there again. So Karen, I've got some questions for you about that. And I want to talk a little bit about how Thomas Hardy himself thinks about these characters. Because as this omniscient narrator who's kind of outside of the story, it's fascinating the way he's like stopping and reflecting on especially Tess. Thomas Hardy really seems to love Tess. And so, Heidi, I'm curious, reading this again for the first time in a while, right? Mm-hmm. Has your, um, through these 11 chapters, has your perspective on who Tess is, and for lack of a better phrase, how you feel about her changed through these 11 chapters? Or did you, did you, did you sort of have a certain way of thinking about her that was there from the beginning and it's still the same? Right. Well, no, I don't think my opinion of her changed much over the course of this first section, phase one, I guess he calls it. I, I think that the anybody who takes a cursory look at the table of contents before opening the first chapter uh, is knows how this is going to end. And so even in the organization of the book from the very beginning, we have 
I think, to go back to what you just said about fate, a sense of a predetermined outcome, even as we're reading. Um, he's, he's not shy about that. This is the phase about the maiden. The next one is maiden no more, right? We know how it's going to end um, right. if you're paying any attention at all to a to the table of contents. Um, and, and so I think already there's a sense of pathos um, and a feeling of um, change and transition that invites the reader, as you just said, invites the reader to judgment, either towards compassion and empathy or towards kind of that moralistic Victorian idea of, okay, what, what does it mean that she's a maid no more? Has she, what kind of choices has she made? What did she bring upon herself? Right. And so you're, you kind of, as you're going through already have a bit of a judgment going in the back of your head. And I find mine was very compassionate um, and very empathetic. And that, that, got stronger as I read this phase. Karen, do you feel the same way? Like there's the sense of empathy? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think Hardy wants that. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe even, and we'll, you know, this will be something we'll discuss at the end, um, but maybe even overemphasizes that. I mean, in some ways, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, is, is, does he make Tess um, such a victim that it's more bathos than pathos? I mean, so yeah, Mm -hmm. that's just something to think about because he is, as we said last week, following the sort of Aristotelian model of tragedy, um, which if I, yeah, and maybe this is a good time to say yeah. something about that, that we didn't get to yeah. last week that still is in the buildup, I think. So, you know, the sort of traditional definition of, of tragedy is that it involves, you know, a hero or a person of noble birth who through a combination of fate and uh, choice or decision or a flaw um, experiences a fall. And we enter this story encountering a, a heroine who is obviously not um uh, a here, you know, not a, a, a king or a queen or, yeah, or yeah. Um, nobility, but we immediately find out right away that she and her family are descended from a once noble line. And so Hardy's invoking that old um, definition of tragedy um, and saying something about mm-hmm. nobility right away, because we have a, a family that was once noble, that is no more. Um, and Tess is the center of that story. So, so we ha- we'll have to decide by the end, is she, you know, a, a person of, of once, you know, of noble lineage um, who falls and is that, is it because of fate mm-hmm. or her own, you know, something about her character? You mentioned fate. And the, this section has lots of con- those conversations about fate. The narrator is contemplating fate. Um, the end of chapter 11, he even brings up that this has been, she has come across this fate or this fate has happened to her. However, he phrases that I sh- should have written it down. He did. So it's okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he, I, I was going to ask to what degree does like this question of fate and the way he thought about God and providence, something that you guys want to talk about, because it seems my understanding of him is he had a fraught relationship with religion, right? So is he, is he, when he talks about fate, how earnest is he being as a storyteller here? I think is one way I've been, something I've been wondering is he, does he as an artist seem to believe in 
like providence and and if or is he kind of being critical of the notion of providence so and and because i think the way we think about that does have something to say about how we think about the notion of um her what has happened to her and her victimhood all like all those sorts of things seem to be intertwined so karen can you kind of how does he think about that and how much i mean stepping outside of the book a little bit how how interesting is that to both of you to really contemplate what Thomas Hardy thought about fate. That's one of those questions that I always am curious. Sometimes it's interesting to think about what authors think, and sometimes you just want to stick within the within the pages. Yeah, I mean, that that word itself can mean so many different things. So I think, you know, it meant one thing in the classical world that he's drawing on, um, but in his own time, determinism was an emerging and mm-hmm. idea that was becoming more influential. And of course, to even... Today, we know there are different kinds of determinisms Um, in his time. It really a lot of it was biological determinism, but also economic determinism. So I would say that when he talks about he does talk about fate and we probably need to look at some of those passage passages. But he also includes chance um, and Mm. and natural determinism that has to do with, you know, even just tests being born female um, play and being born poor has some deterministic role in the way her life, the way her life unfolds. But he also, it's a tension because he's also, he's writing this entire novel to protest the values of his culture. And so he, you know, I think, I don't remember if I put this in the introduction or not, but, you know, in his own lifetime, many accused him of pessimism. Um, and anyone who's read a little bit would call that, <laughs> call that fair, but he objected to that. He, he, he called himself an ameliorist, someone who thinks that it is possible to ameliorate or improve the human if not the human condition, at least social circumstances. So mm-hmm. I think he's at, at you know, ha, is is embodying a kind of tension between this pessimism or this determinism or fatalism and the human ability to, to change, you know, to change the world and change our own lives. So there's this bit at the beginning of six where it talks about I, I want, I'll just read it. It's on 95. It's the main little paragraph here in Heidi at any point you know, you can jump in. So chapter six, um, then she became aware of the spectacle she presented to to their surprised vision. This is, she's traveling with other people and they have just said to her, why you, you be quite a posy, such roses in early June. And then, so then she became aware of the spectacle she presented to their surprised vision, roses at her breasts, roses in her hat, roses and strawberries in her basket to the brim. She blushed and said confusedly that the flowers had been given to her. When the passengers were not looking, she stealthily removed the more prominent blooms from her hat and placed them in the basket, where she covered them with her handkerchief. Then she fell to reflecting again, and in looking downwards, a thorn of the rose remaining in her breast accidentally uh, pricked her chin. Like all the cottagers in Blackmore Vale, Tess was steeped in fancies and prefigurative superstitions. She thought this an ill omen, the first she had noticed that day. So... I was thinking about how on the one hand, like we could read this, there's like there's some uh, foreshadowing going on here. <laughs> um, and there's all these images that he's dropping. But then he also is suggesting that her feeling like this is an ill omen is a fancy and prefigurative superstition. So he, he seems to, as you said, there's like all these different complicated layers of the way fate and omens and things like that are considered. So how do I read that? How do I read all these different 
different ways, the different approaches, the different scenes and, and moments. Cause then at the end of 11, he's reflecting on her fate in what seems like he's taking it seriously. But here he seems to be suggesting that her thinking that something is an ill omen is superstition. How do you, how do you balance that tension? Which I think maybe was the word Karen just used a minute ago. Man, it's such a good question because the dilemma of any novelist attempting to indict or reveal determinism at all is, is I mean, it's, it's a bit obvious, right? And that is that an author is utterly and absolutely determining the story that they're writing. And, and, and so that's a problem for novelists who are trying to to portray this worldview. Um, and, and Hardy seems to embrace that <laughs> just fully and, um, and use himself as in, as kind of a stand-in for the deterministic universe. And one of the ways he does that, uh, is with these really loaded, uh, pagan and sacrificial images that he gives all the way through the novel related to Tess. Um, in fact, the first time we see Tess, she's participating in a ritual, a village ritual that has deep roots into pagan culture. Um, and uh, we see that over and over again in the novel. Um, Karen, in your, uh, in, in your discussion questions, you put at the end of phase the first, uh, you specifically ask what is the significance of the color red um, in the novel, which we see over and over and over again. And then you also refer to the illusions um, that have to do with with pricking or stabbing, which seem pretty obvious, right? Um, and um, and then yeah, all the way through, yes, yes. And well, well, I'm sure we'll talk about that more um, later on down down the road, even in this episode. But we see all of these, um, uh, and then I'm going to add on to that as well. Uh, this idea of Tess as some kind of sacrificial offering to the universe in order to be a cautionary tale of some kind. Mind, right. Um, and, um, and that we're seeing, I think, and it's going to get stronger throughout the novel. Um, but we are already even have that here, her being taken to a copse of trees, um, in a, a, a circular kind of image, like all of these are these like pagan sacrificial images that are meant to foreshadow, um, and, and meant to, again, contribute to this idea of determinism that Thomas Hardy is, um, is, I mean, it's, really on the nose. Uh, but that's not a bad thing because he is indeed making a statement um, and uh, and doing it, I think, beautifully. It's subtle enough you have to look for it, but when you do look for it, it's everywhere. <laughs> Even in this passage that you just read, um, I wanted to point something out that reveals that tension because where Hardy, you, just, you read this again and pointed to it again, that, you know, she considers that she's steeped in fancies and prefigurative superstitions thought this an ill omen but just before that when he says the narrator says that the thorn of the ro remote the rose remaining in her breast accidentally pricked her chin that word accidentally is very freighted um i was i just looked it up to make sure i was, was remembering correctly but um accident, you know, etymologically and in Hardy's time, I mean, I know I don't want to make the etymological fallacy, but in Hardy's writing and in this time, the word accident still was understood as as related to um, happenstance or chance. Um, and that is what 
the original meaning was, is just sort of, it just happened. So he's even as a narrator saying, oh, this just was fate or chance that this happened. Um, and yet she's assigning it um, this meaning. And so that's the tension that we see throughout this whole whole thing um, is fate and and meaning and chance and lack of meaning, I guess. So one of the things that stories so often turn on is like the choices that characters make, right? There's an agency from either the, the bad guy or the good guys, just to oversimplify that kind of make changes the course of the story. Frodo decides to go on the journey and everything changes. It would have been a different story if Frodo had chosen not to go on that journey and or whatever. I'm just, that's again, oversimplification. So then what role in, in a book like this does choice have to play? Cause there's this scene, if I can find it, um, where I think it's where she's leaving and he actually uses the word determination. 106, here it is. She turned her face down the hill to her relatives and regarded the little group. Something seemed to quicken her to a determination, possibly the thought that she had killed Prince. So then she then she leaves. She decides in this moment mm-hmm. to go. But yet we are getting all these references throughout on, in 109, uh, page 109 on chapter eight. He, uh, Alec, they're talking about horses. And like he talks about how owning this particular, she says, why do you have such a horse? And he says, oh, well, it was my fate, I suppose. So are there certain times when we're supposed to think about this question of fate differently than in other times? Like when Alec uses it, is what is Hardy saying about Alec? And when it says that she was, it, she's, she makes this determination based on kind of her guilt, what role does choice play in all of this too? I, I mean, obviously that's the big, one of the big questions of this book, but how do you read questions of fate as relates to different characters who are clearly supposed to feel different about? We're supposed to love Tess and have empathy for her. And we're supposed to see Alec as being, a creep <laughs> to, to, to put it nicely. So when they both talk about fate, when they, we would think about choice in both of these characters, how, how do we figure out how to think about those with characters who we're supposed to think about in different ways? I don't know, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. Mm-hmm. Like on the one hand, we've got a character who we're supposed to love. On the other hand, we have a character who we're supposed to be creeped out by, but, but questions of choice and fate come out of both of their mouths they both make choices. They both have things that happen to them. Although maybe not. Well, I mean, Gallic is saying things have happened to him. The question is, this gets complicated. Help me out here. How do we think about this? <laughs> I think, I mean, even you kind of stumbling over the question speaks to the greatness of the novel, right? Because of the complexity of the issues that are raised by Thomas I'm Hardy. You're trying to with exactly like paths of thought well, here. and <laughs> I am saying, I am turning that into an yeah, objective yeah. correlative to the, to the whole point of the novel, which is, which. Me being which, dumb just proves that he's a genius <laughs> is what you're saying. Um, well, those are those are definitely not words that I use or ever would use. But, but I think that you're bringing up a really important point, which is that with all of this determinism, which is very strongly, again, this is a problem for deterministic novelists. Um, and but it's also very counterbalanced uh, within the novel with this very tightly constructed 
plot, um, that there, there are chances, there are choices, there are side characters that are brought in like this mob of people that turns on Tess that, that couldn't possibly have any intention to have Tess harmed that particular night by Alec, right? There, that was, that was a chance in a sense. And yet it contributes inexorably towards, uh, the, uh, the telos that we're moving towards at the end of phase the first. Um, and so, uh, Hardy does that beautifully. He brings in these kind of interludes and these side characters and these little, these little moments, uh, that contribute to the ultimate fate of the novel, but kind of counterbalance this sense of, of, uh, they contribute, they both contribute to and counterbalance the sense of inevitability. They all contribute to it. It's a very tightly constructed plot, uh, almost like causes are these like mechanisms, like there's this chain reaction, but sometimes external forces come in to catalyze that train, that chain reaction that feel really, um, uh, that feel like chance. And then Hardy, of course, he's determining them, but they feel fairly natural. Um, and then these, I, I'm really curious. I'm, I want to, at some point, hear Karen's thoughts on the treacle, but that's a total side issue um, that just caught my eye in my notes right now. But anyway, I'm going to pass it on to, to, um, to you, Karen, to comment on what David said, and then maybe you can tag on a thought about the treacle at the end. <laughs> Um, yeah, so just keeping on that same passage on page 106 that David was looking at, uh, I think this also goes right into the heart of that question, um, because part of what I think Hardy wants to say about fate and determinism is not just the circumstances one is born into, but even possibly this one's character might be predetermined. And so, so there are things about Tessa's character. Uh, and I think this came up last week where she's sort of passive and there's also some pride there that, that comes out even in the reading for, um, today, but in this passage on one Oh six notice, it says that she, her form could be seen standing still undecided. Um, she is indecisive. Um, her seeming indecisive was in fact more than indecision. It was misgiving. So so, so misgiving is sort of an instinctive hesitancy, but it's not one that's like articulated. She doesn't have knowledge, the kind of knowledge that would bring agency. She just is indecisive. She has a misgiving and she doesn't really know why. And she just has to kind of go with this flow of her life. And even when, you know, she's quickened to a determination, the narrator says possibly the thought that she had killed Prince. Like, we just don't even know what's moving yeah, possibly. her. Possibly. Yeah, possibly. Well, and he seems to suggest that there's something she's acting like on an instinct or a gut feeling, what he right. calls in the previous section, um, superstition. Mm -hmm. You know, she right. has this feeling like something, this was an ill omen. And, you know, she's kind of either acting or not acting on gut feelings throughout this whole section. So is, is there a difference between like making a choice and acting or, or not acting? <laughs> Like to well, not act when we get to like the end of, of this the, section, yeah. <laughs> that will be the question. Right. But can, can I, can, before we get too far, can I go yeah, back yeah. to Please. chapter yeah, yeah. three? I think yeah. that we didn't get to last week. Again, it's an example oh, right, of yeah. so many examples of, of fate and chance. And that's the, we, we talked about the opening chapter and the, just the chance that the parson came and said this thing to um, John Derbyfield, but the dance, 
right? That the, Heidi already talked about how this is this dance is also a great example of the sort of pagan, um, ancient myths that these uh, that these townspeople live in. But in the dance, the young man who comes along, you know, and 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 doesn't dance with Tess. I mean, this is part of the series of events that will play out later, but. You know, she clearly wishes he would dance with her and he sees her sort of too late. And and the way that chapter, oh, I marked it, the way that dance ends. Now I'm looking for is is he's the narrator says something like, well, it couldn't be how. Oh, it's on uh, at the end of chapter two. I'm sorry. On page 53, as the boys, you know, who are kind of going, they had just made this little um stop to to dance with the girls but they've got to move on and it talks about her let's see well actually i'll read the last two paragraphs of chapter two all of them except perhaps um one had seemed to forgotten this white shape has stood apart by the hedge alone from her position he knew it to be the pretty maiden with whom he had not danced trifling as the matter was he yet instinctively felt that she was hurt by his oversight he wished that he had asked her he wished that he had inquired her name she was so modest so expressive she had looked so soft in her thin white gown that he felt he had acted stupidly however it could not be helped and turning and bending himself to a rapid walk, he dismissed the subject from his mind. It couldn't be helped. You know, there, there's this this sense there, oh, maybe I should have done something differently, but oh, well, it can't be helped. Um, and that's the kind of thing Hardy keeps doing over and over and over. Right. And along with that is the what you brought up last time, Karen, in our last discussion, which is, if Angel had turned around at that moment and gone back, would everything have been different, right? Like these choices that the character shrug their shoulders and say, oh, well, it can't be helped. It was fate. I couldn't have done it any other way. If, if, if only, right? If Joan, if, if Joan had been laying in bed and said, we, we shouldn't have sent, we shouldn't have sent Tess. And then she had not just rolled over and gone back to sleep, but woken up her husband and fetched her home everything would have been different. Right. And so these, these there, there's that weight of responsibility on each character's choices, which is really interesting to me. And this is why Thomas Hardy is such a genius is because each of those character choices seemed to be, seem to be that their responses are predetermined by their character. Right? Um, which is so interesting. You just brought that up um, as another point of discussion in the novel. For example, Joan Durberville is, uh, she is foolish and she's ambitious and she's childish. And so because of that, she just rolls over and goes back to sleep instead of waking her husband up and saying, go get our daughter. We have put her in danger. Right. right. Um, and, and so in a sense, her weakness of character determines her choices, which create the whole determinist worldview and this mechanism that's leading towards the ultimate end of the novel. And the interworking of those is the complexity of the novel, which is why in asking questions about it, we it's, it's we even stumble over how to ask the question because it's so complex. It's interesting though that I was thinking about the idea of dramatic tension because at the end of this book, I mean, you look at the table of contents, we know, right? And most people, I've, I haven't read this book before, but I pretty much know, right? The, the broad strokes. But yet there's this dramatic tension because this question of what is causing things to happen 
is kind of ever before us. So as a reader, we're seeing things add up and then wondering, well, if someone had made a different choice or if Joan had put her foot down or not been so prideful or whatever, would this poor girl have had a different life? And so that's kind of like where the dramatic tension comes in because mm-hmm. we're thinking about the notion of determinism as or, or fate or whatever you want to say, as these things are being put before us, as the author has determined what happens. And, and so the, the, there's this tension in within us where we're saying, stop, turn around, even though we know they never can because it has been determined that they're not going to. <laughs> and so like as a reader, that makes for a really interesting and unique experience. One that I don't think we get a lot in literature. Um, mm-hmm. at least not that's so self-aware of it, of its right. process. We get, there's lots of books where you think just stop being a dummy. Right. And you'll, and you'll survive or just, you know, Agamemnon and Achilles, right. Like, or whatever it goes way back every Shakespeare play ever. Right. <laughs> but here it's so self-aware in it's contemplation of that, that that's almost like what the dramatic tension is. It seems like to me, but then that makes me wonder is the narrator, is our omniscient narrator that Hardy has presented us kind of meant to have a degree of irony in it, Karen? In in him or her, however you want to think about it. Oh, I absolutely think that the narrator has the sense of irony and and I I mean irony is is a great deal of what um what tragedy um consists of I mean going back to what Heidi was saying about how hard it is to 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 figure out well if this had person had made this this character had made this different decision would tra- I mean that that's impossible I mean and, and that goes back to even the classical uh the, mo- the the quintessential example of tragedy Oedipus Rex right I mean you everywhere in that play you can just drop your pen on any page and it will land in a place where oh if this had been taken out things would have turned out differently i mean this is the same we have the same situation here um and can can we bring up a character we haven't talked too much about yet that also exemplifies this okay so this is this is tess's father We've, we've talked about him a little because of his role in the beginning but in chapter Mm -hmm. four after um tests uh you know after after prince is is killed um this is a really revealing thing about his character it brings a lot of what's you know sort of accumulating in the story and will continue to accumulate and it's also a point where you wonder maybe things could have shifted a tiny bit and this is where um on page in this edition page 79 when he learns that um that he couldn't get a lot of money for the the horse's um carcass he says no he says that he won't sell the horse's car. They're going, they're going to bury this horse. No, said he stoically. I won't sell his old body. When we Durbervilles was knights in the land, we didn't sell our chargers for cat's meat. Let him keep their shillings. He served me well in his lifetime and I won't part from him now. Now, you all know, if you know anything about me, you know, I love animals. Right? And, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not going to I'm not going to fault someone who has a sentimental attachment to their animal. But this isn't a, even a sentimental attachment. This is just this is well, I'll give it away. This is pride. This is pride because he doesn't Mr. Durberville doesn't see himself. You know, he's he's wants to be like the knights who didn't yeah. have to sell their horses carcasses for a few shillings to feed their family. So this is a, like a really bad decision on his part because a few shillings would have helped a little, but he's too proud um, to do that. And the silly thing is 
if the guy hadn't come to him and told him this thing about the Durbervilles and he never would have even been thinking that way. Like he was, he got this one idea in his head and all of a sudden he thinks differently about himself. Makes me think of like a character out of Mark Twain or something. Another story, it's hilarious. Right. It's also fate because the, you know, the parson and oh, yeah. he were yeah. just on the road, happened to be on the road at the same time. And then he heard this idea and that got planted in his head and here we go. Right. Well, and it's also Victorian society, right. Which is another layer of interpretation all the way through the novel of, of Hardy indicting this society uh, and um, the snobbishness of it, the moralistic tone of it, all these things that contribute to the ultimate fate of the characters. If there wasn't this social pressure, would, uh, would Mr. Derbyfield have, have accepted a different way? Would they have pushed Tess into this life? Would Tess have felt the need to be so passive as a woman, right? Like these kinds of things that, that contribute just as much as kind of in cosmic determinism and an individual character determinism. There's also this societal level of determinism. This part, there's that section on 60 and 61 in chapter three, where they're Jones going off to get her husband. It's the stuff with the complete fortune teller, which goes into what you're saying there, right? The Victorian society stuff. It, it ends with when they were together, the Jacobi, the Jacobian and the Victorian ages were juxtaposed, which now reminds me, how do you say Jacob? Is it Jacobian? Jacobi, Jacobian. Jacobian. I think that's one of those words that I probably haven't said out loud since I was in college. You know, you just read it and then you have to say something out loud without thinking about it. And so in like that whole section is really funny because it's not really funny, but as a reader, it's kind of funny because on 60, it says a sort of halo, an occidental glow came over them. Troubles and other realities took on themselves a metaphysical impalpability, sinking to mere mental phenomena for serene contemplation and no longer stood as pressing concretions, which chafed body and soul. And then it talks about, I mean, like who writes, like the very writing of that sentence feels ironic. <laughs> like it feels, this book kind of goes in and out of feeling like sentences are out of place. And then you think about it and you're like, no, that fits perfectly here. I don't, I don't know how he pulls it off. It's like reading a philosopher of the time. It is. But it works. It works in the it novel. Does. That's Even though I'm not Hardy, sure what he said. I have no that, idea. What that, that, that's what makes Hardy a genius. And I do want to say for, for all of the, uh, of the listeners who've been following along on this journey, um, defining these terms, I, I knew this is one of the reasons why I did test last, because I knew <laughs> that these annotations were going to be tough and they really, really were. So um, I, it took me... I, Occidental, I mean, it has so many meanings and it has, ob, you know, obviously he means something very specific in this context. And that one took me a long, long time to figure out exactly why he used that word. So true confession here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, that's one of those ones I think I'd, you'd have to step outside of the book and spend two hours researching to figure out what that sentence means. And maybe that's the point. I don't know. Would people at the at, in his age reading it in, let's say 1900 or 1895 or something have have just known what these things were? Like, would they have been able to no, understand that no, sentence? Some, okay. some of them, yes. Like, like style. We, I think we talked about that last week. You know, the, the little gate you have to walk through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most people would know that. But no, Hardy was definitely ostentatious in his vocabulary at the time. And it was something he's actually, was actually criticized for. So, go ahead. No, that that's... Well, um, so, but is he being ostentatious because he just kind of was an ostentatious guy? Or is there a... 
is there an is there a purpose in this story that that ostentatiousness helps helps him achieve? I mean, I think that's the question. I think it's debatable. I mean, once we know what the words mean and what they're doing, yes, I think he does it well. Um, but I do yeah. think it's a valid criticism that it might impede somewhat. I mean, not just us, but even readers of his day. And yeah. also, I and I, I, again, it's so hard for me to remember what I was thinking and what ended up in the book. I, I think I might have mentioned this, but maybe not, maybe in the questions. Um, you know, Hardy... There, there, it was a sort of, I mean, he came from a family that, that was not of great means. He had great opportunities and he rose greatly. And there are some people, I would say possibly most people, many people who advance in their lives beyond the station that they were born into, who constantly feel a sense of shame about that that they shouldn't, but they do. And a constant kind of need to prove themselves. I see that in Hardy a lot, um, which is annoying, but also sad. And so I see, you know, maybe a little bit of constant trying to prove himself and his intellect and his vocabulary um, in ways that maybe people who were, had been born in more certain um, conditions wouldn't fret about. I know we need to move on to chapter 11, but do you see any degree? I mean, not, yeah, chapter 11, sorry. Do you see any degree of a sense of humor? Because this story is very dark, but in the, on another sort of set of hands, it could be very funny. So I'm trying to figure out, are, are these moments when it seems like it could be funny supposed to be funny? Or is that just me being like weird and reading it without the full picture of the book? <laughs> I, I think I sense more of kind of a sardonic humor you know, more of a, uh, less of a belly laugh and more of yeah, a, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, a kind of a snicker, um, which kind of clever. You know, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. All right. For the sake of time, I, let's go ahead. Yeah. I was go, just going to ask Heidi what she thought about that question. Yeah, I think that's true more. And, and even to go along with what you just said about kind of this constant need to prove himself, maybe even like a wink, a, a, like a winking at the audience, like, um, sharing a, a sense, like one of those jokes that's intended to create a sense of superiority. Like we get it, but these people don't kind of thing. Like the Malthusian is a great example of that. It's kind of funny, but mostly it's just like bragging about knowing, you know? <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> my, uh, my son just came to my studio here climbed up the side of the wall and opened the window from the outside. Hi, Lucas. It was Lucas, yeah, right? Yeah, Lucas. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, for the sake of time, let's jump ahead, um, I guess. I guess I'd be ahead. Jump to chapter 11 and the end of this section because we need to make, we cannot leave this episode without talking about this section. Heidi, I know you have a lot of thoughts. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna clear out here and give you the floor. Um, this would be the point now where if you're listening with kids, decide, this is our, this is our warning. You know, it, we're gonna, might have to talk about things in a way that you may not want your children to, um, to have to engage with. <laughs> and so that's just, that's our, that's our warning. So from, from here on, we're going to, we're going to just, we're just going to talk. Yeah. There's Lucas over my shoulder now. 
And Heidi, maybe you, you know, when you take the floor and I would love for you to set this up, maybe you want to include chapter 10, um, which also, which really sets up chapter 11 and, and brings up the treacle. If you want to talk about I that. do want to talk about the treacle because I want to, I want, this is an interpretive question that I don't necessarily have an answer to. It's a genuine question. As I was reading it, um, she goes to this dance where people are drunk. She's uncomfortable. She needs to be walked home. Um, she can't go home without an escort, uh, which is just by the way, on a personal note, like unutterably sad to me because she probably would have been safer going by herself because all options for getting her home that night ended end with her in danger and being harmed. Um, but that's again, Victorian society, a young woman cannot walk herself home. Um, so she's trying to do the right thing, which is what we see here in phase the first, just Tess trying to do the right thing, Tess trying to do the right thing and forces fate, character, society conspiring against her, pure woman, faithfully, you know, like trying so, to be a good maiden. Right. Um, but I'm curious about this moment with the treacle. Let me, I'm going to, it's on page 132 and I just want to hear David, feel free to jump in on this too, because I honestly am not sure exactly what's going on here. Uh, car, um, she's being walked home. There's this girl and her says, all looked at car. This is the middle of page 132. Her gown was a light cotton print. And from the back of her head, a kind of rope could be seen descending to some distance below her waist, like a Chinaman's cue. Tis her hair falling down, said another. No, it was not her hair. It was a black stream of something oozing from her basket, and it glistened like a slimy snake in the cold, still rays of the moon. Tis treacle, said an observant matron. Treacle it was. And then it goes on to describe it. And then at that point, Carr gets embarrassed. And, um, and that's when all the trouble starts. But why treacle and why such a vivid description on this young woman? And she has to end up taking her shirt off and throwing it on the ground. It's very weird. Can you interpret it for me? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, I, I, there's a lot that I have to just sort of guess, but um, because I don't really know much about treacle, but, you know, it's, if it's a kind of molasses and she's carrying mm -hmm. it on her head, it's, I mean, it's really thick and gross. It's also um, sweet, right? And so it's almost like she got, so it's, she's, it's fallen out of the basket on her head and gone down her back like a thick molasses. So that's why it looks like a, a braid or a snake, but it's also, so it's also, you know, it's thick and gross. I mean, who wants molasses streaming down your back, but also it's interesting because, because it, it's something that she, it's like being caught with candy or something, you know, so, you know, something, I guess, even in the Victorian age, it would be, you know, a woman maybe isn't supposed to have a sweet tooth like that. Um, so I don't know that there's any, super significance in it other than just this is like yeah if you're carrying this mm -hmm. molasses thing and it falls down your back it's gross and funny and that's you know that's another sort of example of fate but what i really think i don't i think hardy's most brilliant stroke in this whole scene besides setting it up and and all of that is the way that um and and in hardy even calls it a misfortune um because 
Um, yeah, the middle paragraph, it was a misfortune in more ways than one. No sooner did the dark queen hear the soberer, rich note of tests among those of the other work people than a long smoldering sense of rivalry inflamed her to madness. She sprang to her feet and closely faced the object of her dislike. So everyone is laughing at her because this thing, the stuff is falling down on her back, but Tess's laughter is a soberer, richer note. That's not her fault, um, right. but it's, it's just what sets it sets Carr mm. off. Um, and there is jealousy because of between, I guess it's sort of implied. I don't know how clear it is, but Carr somewhere it, s- it suggests that um, that Alec had given attention to Carr before. So she so she has a jealousy um, there that and all of these things just co- converge and um, and and make this situation where Tess is left with the, what seems like the best option to, to let Alec pick her up and take her. Right. Yeah. The dark queen. It's, oh, you know what? Here's, what do you guys think of maybe a Lilith and Eve comparison here? Yes. Because of the dark imagery, right? Yeah. Right. And the dark mm-hmm. queen and the snake-like yes. description of the treacle, because mm-hmm. what's about to happen. Yes. Yeah, so um, that. Um, imagine that this is a, a garden of Eden. Remember, this is very pastoral, the country. Um, and, and if, if Tess is presented in this particular section as an Eve figure, like this, like natural kind of queen of a pastoral land. Um, and of course that has the connotation of purity and virginity. And then, so she's maybe the light queen in this um, scenario. And then along comes Carr, who is going to contribute to Eve's, uh, to, or excuse me, to Tessa's demise. Um, and there's this serpentine sexuality image that's used with the treacle, the dark, and it's like slimy, like a snake. Um, and this idea of like cloying sweetness that you brought up right? Like the drowning in treacle is a, a phrase that's often used in, um, in England to talk about, um, like an Gross. over, like a cloying sweetness that like a sweetness that entraps rather than in what, rather than delights. Um, and because then, and then, so she becomes Lilith, this image of like this temptress in the garden. Um, and then there's a literal fight between the two of them. And that's a very mythological idea of like this contest between this dark fallen sexuality and then like a pure virginity. And then the next thing that happens is that Eve is driven out. Um, the Eve figure is driven out and then she's ravished. Maybe that's, I, I would just, it felt so vivid and I didn't get it, but now I'm. That's amazing. Maybe. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Yay. Hi. So, well, mm. that. That, that makes more sense because I could mm. tell the imagery was so vivid and I'm like, I don't get it. So anyway. Well, one thing that yep. even if you don't get the imagery that stands out is this, the sort of like horror. I mean, it uses, she yes. it says like to Tessa's horror, the dark queen began stripping off the bodice of her gown. So there's this, there's this intensity and this darkness and this um, sort of, I was going to say gruesome, but it's not really gruesome in the sense, you know, in the violent sense, but there's just, it's, it's dark, you know, there is a, there's a, it's, a, it's like a scene out of some kind of like Gothic story. Right. Yeah. And whether it's the setting or the actions or, or whatever it is. And then in theory in swoops, this man to save the maiden. Right. But then that's completely turned upside down. So she's, she's driven out, 
But part of the driving her out is the character who would normally be the one rescuing her, which brings mm. us to the end of the chapter. So Heidi, I know you've thoughts on this. I have yeah. another child coming into the room, so I'm going to hit mute now. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, so as there's so much debate about what happens to uh, Tess here at the end, and it's obviously not descriptive. Um, why isn't he more... Why, why isn't he more clear, Karen, mm. about what happens here at the end? Yeah. What are your, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. Why the ambiguity? So I did, you know, in the, um, in the Facebook group, this came up and I had to uh, check myself about where I put this and I don't, you know, I, I put uh, for anyone who wants to go to the discussion the for questions for further reflection that are after the whole book i do have a question that could have also just gone in the discussion question for phase the first where i explain a little bit of the background and i'll just i'll just go to that it, again it's not a spoiler for anything else i just i don't know why i put it in that question but it's on page 653 um, Hardy had included Alec giving a druggist bottle to to Tess in this scene, which made it clear her clearer that she would have been, you know, drugged and 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 uh, and much more of a, a clearly an assault. And Hardy took that out. So we know two, the re, one reason he took it out is because that was sort of a, a trope of melodrama mm. um, and made it inferior art. And, and there were a number of criticisms in his earlier versions um, from editors about it being too melodramatic and too sordid. And so that was that was one reason to take mm. it out. But in taking it out, he increases the ambiguity, right? He increases uh, our understanding of how passive test was or how resistant she was. None of that is, is all obscured to us. Um, and it's so brilliant on Hardy's part because we still have these problems, right? We still have these problems with um, the kinds of, of um, seduction slash assault slash rape that that we don't even always know how to categorize, not only us as we're talking about them, but even you know, the women and men who are involved in the situations, um, the language doesn't, our language to even today doesn't always adequately capture what happens in these situations. But I, you know, I, it, it, it will be, you know, well, let's, let's just talk about how clear it is now as written. Let, let's do that for a second. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'd find myself just imagining you talking about this with your college students, because this is like a very, very relevant question um, to young women everywhere. Yeah. Can I, can I interject there for a second? Yeah. When I wanted to ask you teaching this with, with college age women in their late teens and early twenties, presumably, how do they respond to this book? And especially given that maybe the, there's been a few generations of young women who've experienced these kind of conversations happening in public in a way that they weren't happening even 10, 20 years ago. So do they respond to this? Um, and, and they, that I like this book. Do they, do, does the complicated relationship that young women who are living now have with conversations such as these impact the way they feel about this book? I don't know how it couldn't. What's been I mean, your experience? I yeah, I the, the most um, 
sort of dramatic experience I had related to this is I did have a student um, who uh, sought an alternative reading assignment um, because after getting to this part, because the what happened to Tess was too similar to something that she had experienced. And so, um, so she had, she went to the admin, this was, this was actually a number of years ago. So this was before even the idea of, of, of this kind of traumatized reading of a text was something I knew about or even understood myself. Um, So that's probably the most dramatic example. And others are just simply, it's, it's not even, I mean, we have wonderful classroom discussions as you can imagine, but there's also a lot of quiet and there are, are people, students who've come to me outside the classroom to share things that have happened to them because of the discussions that we have in the class about this book mm. um, and struggles that they have, have having had things done to them that they also don't know how to categorize, or maybe they do know how to categorize. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's a, it's very, very powerful. This is a, this is a, a brutal book that continues to touch on real life experiences that women and men are having every day today. Agreed. Well, and I think it's all the more powerful due to the ambiguity of the writing. I'm grateful that he made that change because you find Mm -hmm. yourself at the, I find myself at the end and knowing the literary debate over the ages, over what happens here to Tess, I find myself asking like, does it even matter? Mm -hmm. She was so clear to him, whether this is a seduction or a rape, is that even an important question considering Mm -hmm. how clear she was that she was not interested? Right. And, and we have the foreshadowing, right? We have the strawberries, we have the rose, we have the shaft um, that went through Prince. And then we have, you know, Hardy's own words at the end of this, um, on page 145, he, he says it pretty clearly. He says, and, and this also came up in the, in the, in the close pods, um, group. He says, uh, in the next to last paragraph of chapter 11, but though, oh, I'm sorry, the next and to last, doubtless some of Tess Durberville's mailed ancestors rollicking home from a fray had dealt the same measure even more ruthlessly towards peasant girls of their time. So he says they may have been more ruthless, but he calls it the same measure. So he Mm. is saying what Alec did to Tess in this moment is the same as these roving soldiers, knights did to peasant women Mm. years ago. What page is that again? 145. Right. Which is such a brilliant sentence um, for multiple reasons. Uh, One is the humanizing. And uh, I, I just I think Hardy's as David, as you said earlier, like his love and protectiveness of Tess in spite of what he puts her through in this novel so um, is so evident here. It's so clear that the author of this book loves his creation and um and there's absolutely no sense of blame no matter what happened to Tess here um and that sentence I think is great and it also because it also includes an indictment of Victorian culture that would uh that has brought her to the point 
of all of this social pressure to get this guy, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, to like, uh, to be attractive to him, um, and get her to marry him, um, excuse me, get him to marry her. And now, now look where it has gotten her. Mm -hmm. The same Mm -hmm. as peasant girls have been treated by men of higher rank through all of history. And this Mm -hmm. is the thing that her parents are glorifying Mm -hmm. and wanting to be a part of. And it's brought her to this. And their pride is part of what's pushed her to it. Right. right. So right. there's that, there's that question of like the cosmic determinism, right. also the societal determinism, also her passivity and how much that has. And, and the question mark of what, of whether or not a, a stronger character could have withstood the advances of this man. And there's no indictment in that. Mm-hmm. It's just a question right. mark throughout the right. novel about Tess. Right. Right. And and not at this moment, but all of right. the moments before when she could have said right. no to her parents. I mean, she knows her parents are foolish and it's a, you know, it wasn't a smart idea to send her, but she, she goes along with it. Um, and, and I, you know, since we're on that page, I, we really have to read together the next sentence because this is where the true voice of Hardy comes through. I think I'm, um, yeah, there are places where he sort of breaks the fourth wall and he says what he wants us to know. And he says, after, you know, he talks about the male ancestors doing the same thing to um, peasant women. And then I, you know, again, I'll say this is Hardy, not just the narrator, but though to visit the sins of the fathers upon the children may be a morality good enough for divinities, it is scorned by average human nature, and it therefore does not mend the matter. He is indicting God, mm-hmm. yes, um, in this passage and saying that human beings don't, you know, that we, that that what God. God's um, most normal, good human beings would not. He is very angry at what he perceives to be, um, you know, the God of the old, the character of the God of the Old Testament. Right after that section, there's the thing where it says an immeasurable social chasm was to divide our heroine's personality thereafter from that previous self of hers who had stepped from her mother's door to try her fortune at Trantridge Poultry Farm. What does it mean that the immeasurable social chasm is to divide? So she's a different person now, essentially it's saying, but why is it talking about the immeasurable social chasm Mm. right after this sort of thing has happened to her? I think that's, that's getting at what Heidi was just talking about. The thing that changes her is not as much the act that's done to her as it is the consequences the social consequences for it, which we, you know, we'll read in the, what follows. Um, right, 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 right. Right. It's, it's, it's society that renders the most, this is what Hardy's going to say. He's going to say it's society that brings the worst consequences on her than just the act itself had done. Hmm. Okay. We've been, we're at an hour now. So let's, we're going to have lots of time talking about the fallout um, what, what he kind of sets up there in that sentence. Do either of you have any final thoughts on this section, any final passages or sentences, any final images or anything like that, that we need to touch on before we, before we move on to the rest of this book and we talk about the, the next section. Karen, do you want to go first on that? Okay. Well, since we're on this, this area, this page, um, I'll go back to the previous page 144. And we've been talking about how much Hardy loves Tess, he loves his creation. He loves his character. 
and I want to pose the flip side of that. I want to I want to ask readers to think about whether Hardy presents a too idealized picture of her. And we can look, for example, at the beginning of the next to last paragraph of chapter 11, where he's where he asks why it was that upon this beautiful feminine tissue, sensitive as gossamer and practically blank as snow as yet, there should have been traced such a coarse pattern as it was doomed to receive. Um, that's a pretty idealized vision of Tess. And is it too ideal? I don't know. Um, but that's that's the question I think we want to pursue as we continue reading. Yeah, I think to piggyback onto that, um, if as as we've talked about a few times and posed originally by you, Karen, if this is an Aristotelian tragedy, we need a more fatal flaw in our character. We need because in 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 Aristotelian tragedy, the ultimate doom or demise of the character is directly linked and caused by some kind of flaw, not in the external forces, but within the character, him or herself, um, Macbeth, right? Um, however, I think the more interesting tragedies are more like Hamlet in which there's, you're like, what, what is this guy's fatal flaw? Why do we end up with a stage full of dead bodies? Is it really just because of the guy who can't make up his mind? No, there's this interaction between external forces and um, and and the flaws or, uh, of the character and their bad choices. Um, and I I think that to your point, right now in the novel, we have mostly external forces, um, more like Oedipus Rex than like Macbeth so to speak. But, but to our listeners that it's interesting to see if we think that changes though, as we go, because Tess does become more complex as a character. Um, but is that just because of the external forces that have conspired against her, the predetermined outcome, or is that because she, we, we get to see more fully into what could be her flaws? You know, that'll be an interesting discussion between the three of us. Is there, as a way of kind of asking about what's coming, is there any point in even contemplating the way Hardy presents Alec? I mean, is he ultimately just pure evil? And I mean, it's a tough question to ask after talking about a scene where something like that happens. Um, he, as of now, yeah, from what we know. But I guess what I'm saying is like for looking forward into the he's book. He's an I'm, ass. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I think that's kind of like an understatement. But right. Yes. It, it, that's one of the things I'm curious about is like, is if, if, does he bring them closer to each other in terms of uh, how we're supposed to think about them? Because at the beginning, she's this maiden, he loves her, mm -hmm. but is it too idealized, Karen? You just asked. So is it, is he also too evil at the beginning? Mm -hmm. And does he change? Does Hardy also change? Ask mm -hmm. us to think about him differently. I'm not saying it's a difficult question to ask. I'm just thinking as, as a writer, from a storytelling perspective, from a dramatic perspective, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that what he in this section at all, he's done anything but be creepy, but does that change throughout the book? Does he do anything to does Hardy try to uh, redeem him in any way? That's I mean, kind of I, one of the I think what you're asking, and it's a really good question that we don't want to answer yet, but he's clearly presenting an idealized picture of Tess here and an mm -hmm. idealized, uh, an idealized picture of innocence and an idealized picture of evil. Right. right. And so does Hardy complicate these in the course of the novel? That's that's a good question to be asking. 
I mean, I think we already have a very complicated novel, right? Like if it was, if this was these first 110 pages in your edition <laughs> were just half a novel, we'd have a lot to go on. Um, so for the next episode, we're going to talk about uh, phase the second, phase two, which I don't know. Hold on, I'll tell you exactly what chapters those are. That would be chapter six. Uh, well, actually, I didn't write them down. Okay, it's just phase two. <laughs> I'll post online and we'll get um, get it updated with the actual chapters. Um, Karen, thank you so much for coming on again. Um, anything that you want to, mm-hmm. anything you want to pitch or anything you know, you've got your, your, um, your podcast, is that going on right now? Are you on a break? What's going on with that? Oh, well, if, I mean, we, we are, we have completed season one of Jane and Jesus, which is about pride and prejudice and Jesus with various different <laughs> guests. And, um, so yeah, so if you haven't checked it out, it's all the season, all of the episodes of season one are there. So that would be swell. Yeah. That's a great, uh, great podcast. I've been listening to it. So. You've got a bunch of those. Then, of course, you do have, you have the books. You have Tess. Tess of the Durbervilles and the Scarlet, Scarlet Letter. Letter. Yes. So definitely grab those. Um, I'm just going to drop this here as the bookseller in the group. Saturday <laughs> is Independent Books, National Independent Bookstore Day. So it might be a good day to hit up your local independent bookstore and see if maybe they have a copy of uh, Karen's editions of Tess or the Scarlet Letter. And in the event that they don't, berate them for that and then make sure that they order some, maybe claim one of those. So just want to throw that out there. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much. Um, to everyone who's been listening, don't forget you can, you can find us at closereads.substack.com. We've got written content. We've got uh, bonus content. We're finishing up our conversations on Anna Karenina, or at least I'm not on those, but, uh, Brandon, Tim and Heidi are uh, finishing up those conversations. And then we're about to announce what book we're going to do next. So I know there's been a lot of, lot of uh, interest in that. So again, that's closereads.substack.com. I guess that's it. Heidi, do you have anything you need to add? No, I do not. I just want to pitch um, my friend Karen's podcast, Jane and Jesus, uh, and her new edition of Tess of the Dorbervilles and Scarlet Letter. And then uh, upcoming is Independent Bookstore Day. If you're anywhere in the Concord, Charlotte area, you're going to want to check out my friend David's bookstore, Goldberry Books. You can find it online as well through yeah. bookshop.org. Wow. I, thank, I, thank, thank you for bringing up those things that no one else has mentioned in the last five minutes. Heidi <laughs> such a good friend. Yeah. I know. And, you know, unlike me who forgot to mention her birthday on the podcast last week, but Heidi, again, happy birthday. Uh, you look great for being 80. Um, with that, for Karen Swallow for, <laughs> and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.